And welcome back to the Natural History Covered podcast, the place where the wonderful and weird parts of the natural world come together. I'm your host, Gareth, and with me as always are my two co-hosts, Erin, uh, say hi. Hello there. Hello. Uh, Andrew, say hi. Hello there. <laughs> you are a bold one. Well, this week we've got a wide variety of different things from uh, sea slugs that don't have bodies to uh, escapees and even one of the more bizarre looking things that you'd find inside of a fish's mouth. Uh, and then we're going to go and be, well, really, really nerdy and go delving into our old toy boxes. Um, but let's start off this week's episode with the news. And welcome to the news. So to take us out this week is uh, Drew's news article. Um, you're talking about some escapees in South Africa. Take it away, Drew. Yes, indeed. So there is uh, chaos in South Africa this week uh, and last week as well uh, due to an escape from a crocodile farm in Bonnie Vale in the Western Cape. So the farm is called the, I think it's Yan, it will be pronounced Yan Hoppy Farm instead of Jan Hoppy. Um, and it, it took some real digging to find that name because every article I found on this just, just said it was a crocodile farm. Um, <laughs> but eventually I found it. Uh, and I assume they farm the crocodiles for meat and possibly for the, mas- uh, the, for the fashion industry. So mm-hmm. obviously they're farming crocodiles. And as you may guess, when something escapes from a crocodile farm, it's probably a crocodile. So it's some crocodiles that have escaped. <laughs> um, they are sub-adults. Uh, they measure around 1.2 to 1.5 meters, the ones in the farm. Uh, so they're only young. Um, and they escape through a hole in a wired fence and into the Breen River, which, as far as I can see on Google Maps, when I did find the property, it literally runs right against the back fence of the property. So uh, it wasn't, that's, they didn't have to go far to get out. That's, poor placement. The that's really poor placement of a crocodile farm. <laughs> yeah. Um, so as of Wednesday, the 11th of March, um, 54 crocodiles have been accounted for. Um, I don't know how many were recaptured as they unfortunately uh, euthanized some of them. Uh, and they still don't seem to know how many are still at large. So the commercial breeding farm is said to have around 5,000 crocodiles and recovery teams are still trying to find out from the property owner how many of the reptiles are still missing. Um, to which one of them asked, is it 100 or 1,000? <laughs> so, so landowners and community members on the riverbed have been alarmed and the public have been cautioned as well to be alert in the surrounding areas. Um, and efforts to recapture the crocodiles include uh, boat patrols on the river which mostly at night. So this is made up of four police boats with two divers each. So I imagine that's a fun job for them. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and conservation officers from Cape Nature, which is a governmental organization responsible for maintaining wilderness areas and public nature reserves, have set up humane traps with bait on the riverside. So these traps have become less and less effective because there is an abundance of food in the crocodiles uh, for the crocodiles in the river. Um, so they're just not bothering. They don't need to go to the, uh, to the traps. There's, there's have they tried there. cheese? Have, have <laughs> they tried cheese? Is there something? Is there something that you know about crocodiles there, and that the rest of us don't? I don't remember them particularly liking it. I think it's probably as useful with crocodiles as it is with mice. With uh, yeah, yeah. Well, I I'm not sure. I'm, I haven't. I didn't find any any mentions of cheese, uh, or any mention of what they were feeding them. I just assumed it was meat. Um, Stupid. Stupid question, but are those crocodiles native to that river? Oh, well, I'm assuming well, I would just get to that in literally my next paragraph. Um, so uh, basically, no, um, <laughs> basically, <laughs> no, but I will, I will quickly cover that in a second. Um, so yeah, that it means that euthanasia, uh, because the, the traps are becoming less and less effective, um, and capturing them without traps is really difficult. Euthanasia becomes a, a, an avenue that they have to explore. Uh, so I quote a spokesperson for Cape, uh, from Cape Nature. Um, they said, as time is of the essence, Cape Nature and the search party partners were left with no choice but to euthanize seven of the crocodiles spotted. Um, though crocodiles are indigenous to South Africa, they are not part of the natural fauna of the Western Cape. Um, so they, no crocodiles in South Africa are up in the uh, northeastern part of the country. Um, and it's, I mean, it's a big country, so quite, quite away from uh, where these ones have escaped. So the CEO of Cape Nature, uh, Dr. Rosina Omar, said she is 
Uh, saddened by the extreme measure this operation is now requiring, uh, but Cape Nature regards the safety of the surrounding community first and foremost, uh, which, which further accentuates the urgency of the recapturing of these wild animals. And she also emphasised that the onus remains on the wildlife owners to strictly adhere to permit regulations. Uh, a thorough investigation will be led by Cape Nature to ascertain whether there was a breach in complying to the regulations, which could have resulted in the escape of these young crocodiles. Um, probably, I would imagine. Uh, so I'm now just going to quickly touch on the ethical side of things. Um, so that's pretty much the, the news article in itself, really. Uh, those crocodiles are still at large. They don't know how many are out there, really. Um, and they they want to do some investigations on the on the farm. Um, did they, did once, they once say sorted. you said they it's not conclusive, like why, how they got out? So because you were saying that it, it the enclosure backs right onto a river. So yeah. first things that went through my head were erosion of like the riverbank mm -hmm. or the fact that, well, is it some or all crocodile species burrow? It's some, isn't it? Not all of them do it. Um, yeah, not too sure. I'm, I imagine all of them have the capabilities of doing it, but I, I'm not sure if all of them instinctively do it. Yeah. Just wondering if it dug out, you know? Uh, I do have some information on that. And again, or we'll... if someone just left yeah, the gate open, perhaps. Yeah, well, Probably. Uh, I'll, I'll get onto uh, that little bit of information in a second uh, because I do have a bit more information on that, how they actually got out too, uh, which cropped up later. Um, do you have yeah. sources? I, I just wanted to quickly touch on the on the ethical side of things as well. Mm -hmm. Of course, this is an emotive topic for many people, I imagine. So my immediate personal opinion is that I don't think we necessarily need crocodile farms or to farm crocodiles. Um, I've not personally eaten crocodile meat mm -hmm. um, or any rep or reptiles for that matter. Um, I've heard it's quite tough and it's not particularly nice. Uh, have you guys ever tried it? Yeah, it's it's all right. Yeah. Um, out of all the, the, the sort of exotic meat that I've eaten, <laughs> um, I would say crocodile is by far the blandest. Right. Uh, the only thing I think that tasted worse was snake, in my mind. Okay. And another, I've, another reptile. I've eaten a snake in the past, and that tasted far worse than, than crocodile did. Never but then, tried yeah, it myself. It's, you know, if, if you gave it some sort of flavoring everyone just goes with the usual thing of oh it tastes like chicken but uh yeah yeah, yeah. it no chicken tastes like chicken crocodile tastes yeah. like crocodile. nothing actually tastes like chicken if you cook it properly <laughs> well no especially yeah. not in a you know in a microwave there <laughs> <laughs> that may be a that may be a story for another day in, in, yeah aaron's yeah. cooking um, corner Sorry, sorry, we'll move on. We'll move on from Aaron's uh, microwave chicken nightmare. Um, so, also, you know, if if you're if you're going to be killing killing the animals anyway because you're farming them, um, I don't obviously think that the skin and leather should be wasted too. But I'm of course against the fashion industry encouraging the farming of crocodiles for their skin. Um, however, all of this is just my opinion because we're veering into the territory of should we then be farming cows, etc., where the leather is a byproduct of that. Um, and I'm not against farming animals per se, so maybe I'm just a hypocrite and, and I, I just like crocodiles. Uh, but on the less emotive side, um, and to be honest, it is an argument that leans towards favouring crocodile farming. Um, I could mention that to combat the ivory trade, we could farm elephants for their ivory, thus making the price of ivory more competitive, so it should go down. It would also be better governed and hopefully there will be more, uh, there will be proper legislation in place that re uh, regulates the animals' welfare. Um, so this, in theory, would... Uh, reduced demand on poaching wild elephants for their ivory. Um, it's the same topic that we use to combat the war on drugs, but obviously we're not going to go too far down that rabbit hole because um, it's a little bit off topic. But anyway, same sort of arguments. So if we need crocodile products, and I suppose that's the main question we should be asking, it might be better to farm them than to kill wild ones. And I suppose the main issue that I've uh, that is is that I've never heard anything good about crocodile farms. Um, the animals aren't free range quite often, and they're often kept in very, very poor conditions. Um, there are, I'm sure there are exceptions, but so far all those exceptions have eluded me. So based on the fact that this farm seems to have no idea how many crocodiles, uh, crocodiles they had, they just said around 5,000, and a former employee of the farm said that their fencing, uh, the fencing holding the animals was not regularly checked for safety. So this is probably how they escaped. 
there's probably a hole in the fence. Um, that pushes me towards the opinion that this farm in particular probably doesn't have the best wildcard standards. Well, not if they know this, if they can't tell whether they've lost a hundred or a thousand, because no, that's, no, and that's, that's that seems to be the biggest up. problem. Um, so I will finish on the on that question that I mentioned before. Then, do we need crocodile products? And I'll leave that for you guys because I've already, I've got I've I've had an opinion on that. If you have an opinion, um, and also to anyone listening as well. Mm. Oh yeah, what if you do, do have what do you guys think? If you do have an opinion on that. Feel free to uh, to email mm. us and let us know. Um, my thoughts would be that uh, my only thoughts would be in that crocodile meat. I I could assume is probably better environmentally uh, produced than say beef. But then yeah, again, if we're going to go down the route of producing environmentally friendly meat, I'm far more for the idea of us producing um, insect farms to to, mm -hmm. to produce um, insect protein because in well, sort of processed meat, you, you you would not have a clue that it was insect or crocodile yeah. or elephant. Yeah. <laughs> what about um, what about the feeding of the crocodiles though? If you are farming, because yes. Um, the carbon imprint might be might be smaller yeah. than a cow, but you've got to feed the crocodiles on something. Exactly, yeah. So I, it, there's always going to be something that's going to to be a negative impact on the environment. I think that's just farming in general. But um, you, I I would say if it's better than than farming uh, cattle in producing CO two and things like that, then I would be in favour of it. But at mm -hmm. the same time. Um, I, yeah, I, as long as they've got better, decent welfare standards, you can have any animal farmed and and have good welfare standards at the same time. So, yeah, I'm 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 on the fence. That really yeah. poorly yeah. maintained fence. Yes. <laughs> uh, do you have an opinion at all, Aaron? It's obviously fine if you don't. I I kind of do. Um, yeah. So when looking into this subject, because I I know about crocodile farms. Uh, and I've also heard of like ostrich farms and all kinds of mm -hmm. other types of farms for exotic meat. Um, and the thing that stood out to me, and as far as I can see, uh, uh, again, this is a very brief look into it. It's something that I'd like to look into further now after hearing this. But uh, very, very briefly, the um, the only benefit I could see was the actual crocodile hunting, and from what I can see, it was primarily for the fashion industry for leather and stuff yeah yeah, yeah. was causing quite a decline in crocodile certainly yeah. in australia it was yeah so um, africa if farming offsets that decline of 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 wild species it's a bit how i feel about about uh deer i suppose i'd rather farm deer uh and have um a venison uh kind of supply that way rather than going out and hunting them, especially in Britain, where we're an island, let's face it, if we get rid of them all, they ain't going to swim across the, uh, the English <laughs> Channel. Um, so, yeah, in that respect, farming them kind of somewhat protects them in the wild a little bit. However, the point I keep coming back to is actually the question you asked, Drew, is like, do we need yeah. crocodile stuff? Now, from a, a, Western, a Westerner's point of view... Uh, we have all these meats that we've we've got, so that kind of eliminates the need for crocodile meat for for, for me uh, as someone living in Britain. Um, I am against um, the fashion industry or clothing industry, whatever, using um, animal parts. Uh, I I understand that it's better if uh, if the leather and the hide and stuff like that is a byproduct of a meat industry because yes. I would, I feel better. And again, like you said, I, this might make me a hypocrite, but I think if you're a hypocrite and you are aware that you're a hypocrite, that's probably better than just being an, <laughs> being an ass about it. So yeah, yeah, I prefer the idea of an entire animal being used as opposed to an animal being killed for leather and the meat going to waste or being killed for meat and then the hide going to waste. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Um, so in that respect, I'm kind of for the farm, but that's from someone who's living in, in England. I don't know what meat 
they have available. I assume that they have goats and cows, uh, maybe sheep. Yeah, they do. Um, Also, they've got warthog. That's a a wild species of of pig. Presumably, it's the same as wild boar. You You could farm that, domesticate it. But that's, I don't know. I don't know. Cool. Well, there we go. Right. There's a nice ethical question for everyone. Right. Well, we'll we'll go on from escapee crocodiles to escaping heads. Um, and this is uh, is my news article. Um, this is from the the New York Times, uh, and it's a sea slug. Um, so sea slugs or nudibranchs. Um, they're basically a group of well, they, they look like very, very pretty slugs that live under the sea, essentially, is the best way to describe them, really. They're not like your common or garden slug. They are uh, a different um, group of, uh, of animals entirely. Uh, but this story is about a sea slug that lost its head. Uh, there is a professor, uh, sorry, a PhD candidate uh, at Nara Women's University in Japan called Sahaya uh, Mito. I've probably butchered that name. Uh, and <laughs> she has been studying um, sea slugs for years. Uh, and one day when she was going in to check the sea slugs in her lab uh, or whatever building they were housing them in, she saw that one of them was decapitated uh, and thought that essentially it's, well, it's been uh, chopped in half by something uh, and has, has died uh, and is just lying there on the tank. She then Ch- noticed... Chopped in that- half by what? Well, they they didn't really say in scalpel the what had chopped it in half. <laughs> we'll get to scalpels in a second. Mm-hmm. Uh, essentially, she noticed then that the head was moving. It was just roaming around on its own, and the body was sitting there, sort of, you know, just not doing very much. Uh, so she assumed, okay, it, this has just happened recently, and the head's just moving around and is just going to die any minute now. She watched it and watched it, and then hours later, she realised that the head was still very much alive. And she noticed that the mark in between uh, the the sort of separation between the head and the body uh, had gone through a process known uh, where the uh, known as uh, autotomy, essentially where the body has separated itself. It's dissolved the tissue between the head and the body. This is the same sort of process that some other animals use, uh, you know, to lose tails um, and other body parts to, to get away from predators. But this is, as far as they know, the first account of an animal ditching its body mm. to get away <laughs> and essentially being ahead. Now, you'd think, you know, sort of general sort of common sense would tell you, you need a heart, lungs, all of those different organs to survive. I wouldn't generally recommend anyone going and decapitating a human um, because no, we don't that's tend to very strictly. No, we definitely don't want anyone doing that. Yeah, we don't want, we don't want anyone decapitating anyone to try this on humans. No, please, it doesn't work no. on humans. Um, but uh, she noticed that the uh, after about three weeks, the body had regrown completely. This is uh, a sea slug that was basically able to live without its uh, its major organs. Um, and they have a heart, they have um, gills, that sort of thing in, in their body. But it was able to function perfectly fine just as a head um, for three weeks until the rest of the body had grown back. This led her down the route <clears throat> of doing some experiments where... Scalpels are involved, Aaron. So yes, you are. You are correct. <laughs> they essentially um, they just kept beheading him. She just went mad. Beheading him again. <laughs> they <laughs> did behead a series of sea slugs. Not the well, same they were all one. I, I would that first one. But he's um, been through enough. Same, <laughs> and the same process uh, essentially worked. They they regrew their bodies after about three weeks. So they started to wonder what was going on as to why this was a thing. It's not just something that allows scientists to just muck around with scalpels in a lab. Um, although I'm sure there's probably one or two of them that were doing that. Um, they, uh, they looked at it and um, they, they were expecting some sort of reason to be doing this. They found that the, the, the sea slugs themselves are well known for photosynthesizing. They take on uh, chloroplasts into their skin, uh, their skin cells and allow them to actually be able to photosynthesize like a plant. This, unfortunately, every now and again, allows parasites into their body. So they're thinking that this is actually an evolutionary uh, way of getting rid of that infected body. The way to think about it is if you've got worms and then all of a sudden dissolve your neck 
and just be as a head for a couple of weeks and grow a new body. Uh, and okay. they seem to be doing this over and over again. So um, it's a bit of an odd one. But uh, the video, which will they'll put the link for the um, the New York Times article, is worth watching because it is literally just a head bumbling around next to a body that's just sitting there. It's a, a really, really bizarre looking thing. So, so we're in a uh, pandemic at the moment. Have we? Uh, <laughs> have we considered? Have we considered sea slugs? Have we considered? Yeah. Have we considered doing the sea slug uh, uh, method of just well, beheading all of us from from the coronavirus? Uh, essentially, essentially, I like to think of it as the Deadpool by lopping off slug. parts of our body. Yeah, I was thinking Deadpool. Yeah, yeah. It, it's very. What much is it Deadpool. then? Is it is it just that the body's pumped chock full of stem cells or something? Uh, it didn't mention as to how or why, but because they're um, an invertebrate, they've got a greater elasticity of sort of their bodies than, than vertebrates like ourselves. But I'd like to see someone go down the route of being able to do some sort of uh, transplanting something like that into humans in the future so that, you know, you don't like the look of your, your body. You just lop it off. You just sit there on the couch for three weeks and grow a new one. You know? <laughs> you, you're thinking well, aesthetics. I'm I'm thinking like cancer and diabetes. No, I, yeah, yeah, yeah. The Gareth's always I'm, about aesthetic. Yeah, well, <laughs> but I don't like me the body. And I don't like the back. The body that they grow. <laughs> Actually, back, I could grow myself a new knee. My 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 knee's a bit bust, so I'd, I'd like to have a new knee. Yeah. Yeah, the body they grow back is it the same as the body they yes, had? Yes. Yeah. Because obviously, when, when say like a leopard gecko loses its tail, the tail that it grows back is normally not quite as nice as the as the previous one. They they didn't say whether they seem to lose any sort of um, physical conditioning to it, but uh, they appear to just grow back a new body. There's okay. probably going to be some slight differences, color wise or something. But um, a great yeah. big scar across the neck. Well, yeah. yeah, you know, I think I could live with a scar on my neck if it meant that I had better knees. So. But yes, there, therein lies our weird Deadpool slug, as I'm going to call it. <laughs> and um, we'll go from our news articles now uh, into our creature feature. And it's now time for this week's creature feature. This week, Aaron is looking at possibly one of the oddest creatures that you might find living inside of a fish's mouth. Aaron, what are we looking at this week? Well, I wanted to kind of outgross your kangaroo from week one. Ooh. Which means pushing my uh, my comfort zone out a little bit, or rather <laughs> getting out of my comfort zone a bit, because I'm going into the world of isopods. Um, specifically, the tongue-eating louse. Because what's grosser than a rifling ball of of fish inside your body, eating all your organs, than a crustacean chopping off your tongue and stealing your food from within? <laughs> <laughs> Which is essentially what these guys do. So, um, this is a group of animals called Cymophoa. Um, it's that time of the week where Aaron butchers uh, pronunciation of words. So yeah, group of, of animals called Semaphora, and every species is specialised uh, to parasitise a different area of the fish's anatomy. No, nice. that was a mouthful. So the one I am looking at today is Semaphora exigua, uh, and as I say, it's a parasitic crustacean isopod. Um, now. It is found from the Gulf of California to the northernmost parts of the Gulf of Guayaquil. Uh, <laughs> well, and... That's right. Yeah. <laughs> and parts of a uh, very difficult, very difficult place to pronounce, Atlantic. Oh, yeah. <laughs> mm, I've heard of that. So, is that yeah. a, in that, it's in... Uh, Ecuador. It is in Ecuador, Ecuador yes. Uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's in Ecuador. Okay. Um, so, yeah, as you can see, it's quite a widespread fish. Um, it is known... Isopod. It's... Did I say fish? You Sorry. Said it's, a fish. 
It's because I'm, re- I'm reading the word fish. So yeah, it's quite a widespread isopod. Um, and it is known to parasitize eight species of ray-finned fish, which uh, is quite a lot of, of ray-finned fish, really. Uh, so seven of these are, are persiforms, which are perch-like fish. And one of them is atheriniforms, which is a, it basically they are silversides, is what they're described as. Um, I'm struggling to remember the name of one of the species, but it's it's quite commonly found in Australia. One of one of these species, but not one that the not one that the Simophoa goes for. Anyway, if you thought you were safe in British waters, think again, because a parasitized red snapper was found in British waters during 2005. Now, this is quite a long way from Central and South America, sorry, Central America and Southern United States and, uh, and that where, where we're talking. So, um, so this kind of opens up the question of, is its range expanding? Or was it an isolated incident in which the fish travelled, sorry, the, the fish that it had parasitised travelled to Britain? Uh, so, yeah, that's, uh, that's kind of their range. Now, the, um, the isopod itself, uh, the female can grow up to 29 millimetres in length uh, and it enters the fish through the gills. Uh, and then using its front claws, it attaches to the base of the tongue, where it severs the blood vessels and sucks the blood. Nice. <laughs> the tongue then withers and dies over time. And um, the the animal then uh, basically, it will keep feeding on blood from that area, but also it will feed on mucus from the fish fish's mouth. Mm-hmm. And it will also... Um, it basically functions as the fish's tongue. So it helps the mouth, like the jaws and the teeth, break up food particles. And then it will take a portion of those food particles and feed itself. Uh, So it steals a few few bits of the meal uh, from them. Now, the male is slightly smaller and it grows to about 15 millimetres. And it also behaves slightly differently it attaches itself to the gill arches uh specifically the ones that are beneath and behind where the female is positioned so that is basically how it how it parasitizes fish um other than the fact that it parasitizes fish in this way not much is actually known about the life cycle um it does exhibit sexual reproduction and that is also quite interesting uh, it also dictates um, how it parasitizes the fish, uh, interestingly enough. So what what they think they know about this fish is that juveniles actually swim through the gills and it's juveniles that attach themselves to the gills. They then mature to become males. And if no female is present, because female there there are females as well i i would have, i would have said but if no female is is present uh then the largest male will turn into a female once it matures and reaches 10 millimeters um mating will occur on the gills and then the female will make its way to the base of the ton and that's where it attaches and it starts the whole whole process that i uh that i just went through um, other than the fact that it chops off the fish's tongue, it doesn't seem to cause much harm uh, to the fish itself. However, um, they have found uh, fish that have been infested with these lice. Um, and because there's so many of them in there, all eating um, portions of uh, this poor fish's food, they have found these fish to be slightly underweight. But that's only in extreme cases. Um, so it had multiple tongues in its mouth <laughs> essentially yeah and each tongue stealing food <laughs> uh, but it's the only known case of a parasite functionally replacing the organ of its host hmm. Hmm. I suppose it's like a tapeworm um, filling in for your intestines <laughs> yeah basically um, obviously people are thinking probably thinking 
I hope they're thinking. I want them to be grossed out, creeped out, and scared for their lives. <laughs> uh, is it harmful f- to humans? Yes, it is, <gasps> but not in the way you might think. Oh. It's not going to chop your tongue off. It's not going to take something else parasitize you. Does it pull a knife <laughs> on you? <laughs> it does not. It does not. But if you touch it, if you hold it, if you if you were to find one and hold it, it will bite you. Okay. Yeah. It'll tell you off. Oi, put me down. And that, I mean, first off, I'd have, I'd have thought the fish might bite you as well. Yeah. Mm. Well, the fact that it's not harmful to humans didn't stop one absolute Karen from trying <laughs> to file a lawsuit against a large supermarket chain in Puerto Rico. Um it was claimed that the customer had been poisoned by eating a snapper with the isopod present in its mouth. But the case was dropped because not only are isopods non-toxic, they are also actively eaten in some cases. So, yeah, that was a, a load of fluff for nothing. I'm assuming it was somebody who, did, who didn't know how to cook fish had probably, probably given themselves, themselves food, food poisoning. poisoning. <laughs> I should think so, yeah. Mm. But yeah, that's the uh, Cymofo- <clears throat> that's the Cymophoa exigua, uh, the 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 ton severing louse so when, of the fish. How, how do you? Well, I don't know. If, I don't know if you know this or not. When it takes the fish's tongue, is that a quick process? Is it like bam? No, that's half because the a replacing. Yeah, I I don't know exactly how long it takes. However, the words that I've seen used to describe it is that it severs the blood vessels mm-hmm. in the ton and drinks the blood from it, sucks the blood yeah, from it. Nice, yeah. And then it, um, the ton withers and dies. That, to me, suggests that it yeah, takes a little yeah, bit of time. A weeks or something, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So the ton is rotting. <laughs> nice. I mean, that's, that's got to feel very, very pleasant. Mm. Apparently, it is uncomfortable for them... Uh, like whilst it's happening, but apparently not so much after. Once it's done, it's it's done. I suppose there's a there's a certain amount of healing or scar tissue or whatever. I don't. That really know. you're not attached to the as much as the uh, the isopod is is attached to your remains of your tongue. You can't feel it. Mm. Yeah. So. Also, another. Here's a oh, question. No, no. So here's a question that I would like to know the answer to, but I couldn't find it. And I did try to find the answer to this because I'm, uh, you know, working in a zoo, you get, you, you quite, you quite get accustomed to talking about poo. (laughs) So I wanted to know just like when the parasite eats. So the parasite is steep. So the fish eats, it takes some food in its mouth and it starts to chew it up. And the isopod starts to break it up himself. Mm. And the isopod is nicking food. So the isopod is stealing food from this fish's meal. Right? When it poos... Presumably the fish swallows. Does the fish swallow the poo? Because that's kind of like adding salt in the wound. Pretty much, I think. Not only is he stealing your food, he's pooing in your mouth. I I almost (laughs) swore. I had to stop myself. I would imagine he's probably doing exactly that. That that was going to be my question, actually. Was so that the louse is attached. Really? Well, not specifically that, but <laughs> it was along those lines. So the the louse is attached via its anus to the uh, to the what remains of the tongue no, of the I fish. Don't... How is it attached? Do you know? No, it's it attaches with its um it attaches with its front. All right, so it hasn't got a fish's the rest of the fish's tongue up its anus. <laughs> no, I. It's the way it's I imagine it, and the way I've seen the. If if, if people were interested, watch human Google it because there's like no, not, really not human centipede. Really don't watch that film. It's awful. <laughs> I've never watched it, and I'm never going to watch it. It's, it's like everything that is wrong with the horror franchise <laughs> yeah. in that. Uh, anyway, sorry. Um, no. If you Google it, if you Google the the parasite, you'll find photos of. And I think it looks like an x-ray. I don't know if it is an x-ray, um, but it will show you where it attaches. And so basically it's almost resting on the base of what was once the tongue. So my, what I imagine is it's, he's, he's got his front claws in attaching herself to, the, uh, to the, the base of the tongue. And then in my mind, with my imagination, <laughs> you've got like predator-like mandibles 
chopping food as it comes and other legs going off like karate kid uh, chopping food up I don't know if that's accurate but that's how I like I would imagine like a lot of other marine isopods it's probably hanging on with the rest of its claws and just digging itself in and then yeah using Mm. front pairs to just chop up food my question for you uh, Aaron or it's not so much a question but um, just in case anyone was was unaware as to what uh, an isopod is most people are probably familiar with them as woodlice that's the closest thing that we've got on land to uh to these particular ones in fact drew you'd also be uh one that would have uh, your own opinion as to what to call these particular animals yeah woodlice chicky pig are um <laughs> it's a yeah i call them the same i call them the same as, as drew does uh, they're chicky, chicky pigs. pigs they're one of those one of those invertebrates that have got names so many names all over the planet that it's um it's it's almost impossible. I used to call them uh, slaters, um, which is the Scottish name. It's also the same name in Australia as well. But uh, can you say it in both accents though? I for the fans. Y- no, well, it, it might it might get rid of fans <laughs> if anything. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I it, I only found out at an embarrassingly late age that. It's okay. Chiggy yeah. pigs or woodlouse are crustaceans, so they're kind of related loosely to crabs and lobsters. And the pill bugs, which I've always thought of as roly poly chiggy pigs, are not anything to do with them whatsoever. Nope, just short millipedes. Mm. Yeah. Mm. Well, We'll have to we'll have to see if people decide as to whether um, the kangaroo or uh, the tongue eating louse is more disturbing uh, than the other. So uh, we'll, if, we'll if anyone poll, wants to I get think. in contact with us, <laughs> get in contact with us and tell us: Would you rather? <laughs> would you rather have a tongue eating <laughs> louse in your mouth, stealing portions of your food and pooing down yep. your throat, <laughs> or and lose your tongue in the process? Or would you rather have your body riddled with bullet holes and and loads of little eely fish eating your organs from yep. the inside out? Well, there's, tell us. There's, yeah, there's, hit us on Twitter, we, Facebook, We do or not keep shame here. <laughs> your well, your opinions are safe. That, that'll be that'll be the uh, the poll for this week on on uh, on Facebook and Twitter. We'll have to sort that out. But we'll go from our. Um, We'll go from our uh, disturbing uh, creature feature this week into our um, uh, into our pop culture corner, where this week we're going to be delving into uh, the toy box and looking at some dinosaur toys. Okay, well, welcome to Pop Culture Corner. Um, this week we're going to be delving uh, into the attic getting down those old boxes of toys uh, and having a good trip down memory lane. Uh, we're going to be looking at dinosaur toys, dinosaur figurines, call them what you want. Um, but <laughs> I think we can all agree um, that the three of us are essentially big kids at heart. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Um, I've had toy animals and dinosaurs uh, as long as I can remember um, from being a very, very young kid. Uh, and they formed a big part of what made me the dinosaur nerd that I am today. Um, in fact, I've still got some dinosaur figurines and, and things essentially dotted around on bookcases and that they're, they're a little bit more um, sort of high detailed than some of the toy ones that I had when I was a little kid. Um, but I think when when you're that, that little kid, you you know, that age... You're being able to hold something in your hand that you're not going to be able to see anywhere other than in a book or in a museum. Nowadays, there's far more um, animatronic ones around at, at theme parks and, and things like that. So you're going to be able to see some of them. But being able to physically hold that that representation of that prehistoric animal in your hand and being able to then put it into any scenario that your imagination cooks up. It's a really powerful learning tool, um, I think. And Yes. Play is mm. really important for for little kids, um, and I'd say for big kids as well. But um, more so, sort of collecting them as uh, as you're a, a big kid because it's 
you sit there on the uh, the floor playing with toy dinosaurs, people tend to look at you a little weird. But um, anyway, but you know that that ability to be able to um, get them to sort of move around and essentially make them fight like Godzilla. I know that would be uh, right up your street, Aaron, as I know that you have a uh, a big Godzilla figurine, which is not a dinosaur. I have the classic, the classic Godzilla, like the the one it, that yeah. you don't like, Gareth, but the one that I think is superior to everything that came after. It, it, the, the basically yeah. talking about the kangaroo pose, no, no reptile, ever man in an outfit, like that sort of figurine. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm the heretic <laughs> that likes the 1997 Godzilla that actually moves like a proper animal. But anyway, we're not talking about Godzilla. We're talking about dinosaurs. Um, so. The figurines themselves, um, just like real animals, they've they've evolved and changed over time with our with our understanding of how they've looked uh, and the sort of paleo art that's gone along has also um, changed with our with our knowledge, um, and they're they're basically a good way of sort of tracking time and our changing view of some of these animals. So if you look at like really really old toys of dinosaurs and from say the 50s or the 60s they're all dragging their tails they're not you know they, they look more like big lumbering lizards um but if you look at some of the figurines and that today that you can get just some of the toys as well they've got feathers these are they look like fast active moving animals and that's because our knowledge of dinosaurs has changed over the years just within uh going from the the 60s right the way up to today we've ended up with a totally different view of these animals and the world that they lived in. And that also informs um, mm. generations of kids uh, as they, they basically grow with them uh, as well. So I thought I'd go over some of the best um, dinosaur toys that have basically been uh, a big part of my childhood um, and possibly uh, a big part of, well, the childhood of, of other people, uh, hopefully listening to the podcast. And certainly I know that you guys have, have got some of these um, figurines uh, as well. Um, and some of the best ones of, from the the past, uh, the future as well. Uh, so the first brand that I wanted to mention um, is Invicta. And that was the company that made these particular ones um, for the Natural History Museum uh, in London. And it's a, a series of dinosaur, well, not just dinosaur, um, figurines that were made out of solid plastic uh, the first ones were made in 1976, uh, and they essentially ran as a series up until about 1993. Um, there was everything from Brachiosaurus right the way through to T-Rex, uh, mammoths, Galiptodons, and they even actually produced a blue whale figurine that unfortunately wasn't accurate to scale to all of them. So I'm assuming the idea of it was to basically make it so that you could see the scale of a blue whale to the scale of a dinosaur. Um, however, blue whales are the largest animal that's ever existed on the planet, but the actual whale itself wasn't that big. So it was a it was a bit of a weird one as to why it was ever included with them. But they were really, really sort of detailed to an extent, but they were dated. Um, they essentially had tails dragging mm. on the ground. Um, and sometimes these are done just so the animal, the, the figurine doesn't fall over. Because uh, it can, they were originally all monotone as well, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, just one they solid did. color, basically. Yeah, it was just one block color. I've just seen, I've just seen some that are cut that yes. are, have patterns because I've only ever known them as monocolored. Have, have these They're been painted by people towards who are the end interested? of this particular brand's run? Um, they did start producing one or two colored versions of them, but they were quite rare compared to the rest of them. But most kids, I'd say, mm. I mean, I know that I had a, a big chunk of these. Aaron, I know that you had some of them. Drew, did you have some of these as well? I've, I have got I a, uh, a couple of, of the Invictors, yeah. yeah. Uh, my T-Rex has, has got bite marks in it. I'm not sure if that was me or not. <laughs> I, I can honestly <laughs> say that, that my T-Rex uh, also has bite marks in it. And I, I know for a fact that that was caused by my uh, my brother at the time, who was who was younger. Uh, sure, sure, sure. Basically chewed on it. So, um I think that's it's one of those things, you know, you teeth on a T-Rex seems somewhat appropriate. Um, but like I say, that particular brand sort of disappeared <laughs> um, at the end of the 90s. Um, and to be honest, the ones that the Natural History Museum have now, um, they're nowhere near as good. 
they're really quite low detailed and it's kind of disappointing compared to what they used to have uh, as a as a particular sort of series it's it's kind of disappointing in that sense there is something yeah. quite charming about these mono monotone ones even though like yes they're monotone but the attention to detail yeah. like in the the scales and 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 stuff and again some of them are in ridiculously bad postures as we understand them today but still like it's a snapshot in time of our they are essentially paleo art work. so I, I i like them from just the uh the aesthetic point of view a lot of the time but mm. another one that a lot of kids mm. would in well, certainly during the 90s would probably have uh have had um was from the carnegie collection as in the uh, the carnegie museum uh in america uh and they ran from the 90s right up into the 2000s uh and these were not as detailed as as the um the invicta ones but they were highly colored um so you had everything from i know i had a uh a nice stripy pachycephalosaurus that came um with all sorts of different colors down its body uh, I had a parasaurolophus that had a nice bright uh, yellow crest on its head, um, and they they basically did a huge range of of different animals um, from from prehistoric periods, everything from dinosaurs right the way through to. In fact, I even think they had an Australopithecus um, one that you could get. Their Albertosaurus isn't yeah. bad. I saw that. one. I think there. I had the Allosaurus, which was which mm. was quite a um, uh, a bold coloured sort of grey and black, but uh, had had splashes through it. Those were quite um, a big collection, and, and you can still get most of those ones um, to to the extent this day. Um, but the, the first sort of time we start to see any real action figure style dinosaurs. Um, start turning up around the sort of late 90s. Um, a random find that I managed to find in what was the Rainforest Cafe uh, in the Trafford Centre in Manchester around 1999 um, was a particular uh, series of, of ones called the Carnage Collection. And these were really quite cool. They were completely articulated. They had um, bendable tails and legs and jaws. And you, you basically had an action figure. They weren't terribly scientifically accurate. In fact, the one that I have is a Giganotosaurus. It looks more like an Allosaur. It doesn't have the skull shape that a Giganotosaurus would, but it is still really cool. And the bases they came on were done like a fossilized footprint. So you had um, real sort of detail in those mm. bits, but you actually had articulated joints and you could pose them. And it was more of a collector's piece than anything. They did some really nice ones as well. But you don't really see too many things like that, certainly not dinosaur-wise. Um, I don't know whether you, you guys saw anything like that. Yeah. Uh, only through Google. Yeah, I haven't found it. I found the T-Rex. The T-Rex looks very, very nice out of that particular one. But the ones that most kids, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say kids, um nowadays would probably be aware of and the ones that if you've been to any zoo gift shop pretty much up and down the uk and i'm going to say probably over most of the most of the world you'll have come across um either papo um or schleich schleich schleichy i'm butchering that one and i can never know how to say it drew you've got a better idea of how to say it i'm pretty sure it's just schleich schleich Okay. Yeah. <laughs> well, those two particular brands, you always tend to see them in pretty much any gift shop wherever you go, um, or any toy shop as well. Um, and those are really quite high detailed as well. And they're, they're nowadays far more accurate to our view of dinosaurs. So there's lots of feathered uh, raptors, for instance. They've got things like Therizinosaurus. Um, they've all sorts of different things. They, they even had a Gorgonopsid, which is a, a Permian era stem mammal which is something that you don't expect to see when you think of permian era stuff that you you would see a, a toy of it's usually just dimetrodon um, have you seen their yes, updated that, yeah, i was looking at that for Papa. that's the good thing it's is they do seem good. to be quite consistently updating their figurines so if you had the I, i've got the original one of that and it looks like the jurassic park 3 spinosaurus then you ended up with the 
the different um, sort of knowledge of how Spinosaurus looked has come out over the years, and they've changed their model pretty much mm. uh, straight afterwards. So it's it's really good to see these brands are essentially staying up to date with with quite accurate scientific information. It's very brave with Spinosaurus, though I think because it changes every day. <laughs> so you release you release a toy and it's like, oh, I mean that's already outdated. Well, it's a collector's thing, you know. You've got to go along yeah. and get the next Spinosaurus the next week. Yeah, true. <laughs> there's, there's often um, pe- people people who know about Papo and Schleich, they often there's a debate of who's who's the better one. I'm looking because I've got the Schleich mm. uh, Utah Raptor, which I think is a very it does look very nice, a very good model. I think. Um, it's it's covered in in feathering. It's got nice colours. I've just looked up Papo Utah Raptor, and it's not as good as looking more towards you know the the classic yeah. Jurassic Park Velociraptor style. Which one do you prefer? Which which of those it... the two companies do you prefer? Bearing in mind, <laughs> one of them. I, uh, one this day. isn't me being overly diplomatic or anything, <laughs> but I like both of them. And it depends Ugh. on the it depends Ugh. on the individual figurine. Some of them look better from one, some look better from the no other. No one likes a pacifist. Boring answer. <laughs> I'm on the fence. I'll take anything. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. No, they're both very good, depending on which model but, you want. Um, it is it is true. One of the well, certainly sort of um after that, you know, you've got articulated jaws on some of them, some of them have got movable arms and things like that. But it's still not that action figure yeah. sort of posability that, um, say, the, the Carnage collection had. Have uh, any got a detachable tongue that you can put a louse they, in? They do not know. Not as far as I'm aware. Oh, that they're missing the trick. If, anyone's, if anyone's listening from those companies, that's that's certainly something. That's an idea you can have for free there. That's what um, the people want. Yep, we want tongue louse figurines. Um, <laughs> the um, certainly the the best that I've seen like uh, at the moment and ones that will probably be going into the future there's a company uh that was a kickstarter campaign um is called beasts of the mesozoic uh, and as far as i'm aware this guy who does this um he's he's basically he goes very high detailed with everything he's trying to be as accurate as, awesome. as possible um and the first series that they did he's, he's up to his third series of models now the first series was all uh, raptor type dinosaurs so we had everything from you know velociraptor and um utah raptor and, and stuff like that to my favorite uh, of that line was the is that the one that looks that like one? a carmine bee eater yes yeah and yeah, I'm looking at right yes he's, really done, nice. he's gone and yes. taken the coloring of modern day birds and put them on them so there was one that had um roadrunner colors to it uh, there was one that had secretary bird colours on it. It, you know, some oh. really nice colouring, and they're all incredibly poseable, uh, essentially high quality action figures. And most importantly, the hands are not pronate. Something that's always irritated me is bunny-handed dinosaurs, <laughs> and that's that's essentially because dinosaurs <laughs> did not hold their hands in that sort of bunny hand position that you always see them in every single film and every single model that it just it it wouldn't you to do that you'd have to break the dinosaurs wrists they hold them at the sides um like modern day birds do um and so basically kind of, as if you're clapping your hands together that's how they would hold them that's pretty much yeah that's the best way to describe it mm. um and that includes things like t-rex as well so he should have his hands tilted to the side um yeah, so they've done uh, raptors. He's done uh, horned dinosaurs like Triceratops, uh, the Ceratopsids. Um, and he's now, as far as I'm aware, working on Tyrannosaurs, which at some point I am going to get around to going buying one of these. They're quite expensive for a mm. toy, but from a figurine point of view, I think I might just be able to justify uh, going and buying something like that because they do look very, very nice. Not the sort of thing I'm going to... Uh, not yeah, the sort of thing let me uh, one year old um, play with. He's relatively independent as well, isn't he? So it's uh Yeah. So yeah, it's good to support these sort of new uh newer independent artists, basically. Yeah. Also, if it it's not just 
the toy element it is almost a diorama he sells other bits and pieces that you can connect to it like egg yeah. like nests eggs juveniles bits of scenery you can create a and that's, really that's nice where i think independent them. people doing things like that who've grown up with all of these different things and have had the same sort of thought that we have but they've got the expertise in in modeling and, and making things like that have gone that next step and, you know, nowadays it's a lot easier to come across stuff like that than it would have been 20, 30 years ago to even, even find some of those things. But honourable honorable mentions mm. before we wrap this up. Um, one that I know that formed a big part of my uh, toy dinosaur collection was Jurassic Park toys. Um, and there were some pretty good yeah. ones. Not scientifically accurate. Some of them were posable to an extent. Um really kind of cool um you know I, I i must admit i had everything from the big t-rex that you could get that would roar when you stamped his feet uh right the way through to ones that had battle damage um loads of different raptors that when you, when you were uh, you sort of pressed buttons they'd scream in fact i had one that um would go off randomly in the middle of the night which as a child was absolutely terrifying to hear this random scream coming in the middle of the night. <laughs> so um, yeah, there's some there's some pretty good ones that I think a lot of people have either encountered, or certainly ones that are worth going out and trying to find. You can certainly find most of these. I've gone and had a look on eBay, and a lot of these things are there. Um, you know, people have still got them and still selling them around the place. So they're they're there as a sort of a collector's thing nowadays. Mm-hmm. I think. But uh, yeah, your thoughts uh, yeah. from you from you guys before we uh, wrap it up. My only sort of main kind of input is uh, is it's really really impressive uh, how far paleo art has come. So mm. obviously this includes within toys as well because uh, it's it, it's a form of expression. Um, yeah, with, with toys it helps kids learn. Um, and yeah, there's such a big variety out there. And I think it is because of all of these independent um, artists just sort of grabbing hold of something. Uh, the internet's really easy to release it on, and you just chuck it out there. And there's so much variety out there that it's, 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 yeah, it's mm. pretty cool. It's very, it's, it's. I think it's much better. They've got it much better now, with the, uh, uh, with the variety that they have than we had when we were kids. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. yeah. I think the uh, for me the. Beast of the Mesozoic is my favourite. Um, I do like the the Papo and Slice ones, um, but Beast of the Mesozoic is where it's at. I yeah, do have an honourable mention though, Gareth. Yeah, so these not be Godzilla. particular dinosaurs, there was no... <laughs> it's not Godzilla. Um, <laughs> he's a he's a kaiju, not a not a dinosaur, so not not a real animal. Which means he doesn't obey the laws, outside of, the laws of evolution. <laughs> anyway, there's there's only there's only a select few, and it would probably be better to describe them as prehistoric animals because mm-hmm. it wasn't just dinosaurs. There was uh, there was five of them, super uh, posable, um, uh, no, not posable, articulated, uh, and if you articulated them in a certain way. <laughs> They join up to make a massive robot, and that is of course, oh, of course. the Zords from Power Rangers. I mean, the, the mighty you were building them era, so much, where you had the saber tooth yeah. tiger, the <laughs> the mastodon, the triceratops, the pteranodon. I, uh, which I, I never had any of those ones. I could and a T Rex. Uh, very, very cool. I I had the five Zords, and and as if that wasn't. If that wasn't ba- badass enough, I had the, the my brother had the Green Rangers oh. uh, Godzilla Zord, and he had the the Brachiosaurus Zord. So we all connect it all up together and create the mega, mega, <laughs> mega, mega, mega Zord. Oh, it's just brilliant! It's the only thing about Power Rangers that I still remember fondly is the is the toys. I've tried watching those programs. <laughs> Left to try and go over Power up. Rangers another day, I think. But um, <laughs> yes. That was a fun delve through the toy box, and we'll hopefully put up some of the uh, the different pictures of stuff that we've been able to pull out of our in uh, individual cupboards uh, and see what we've uh, we've got there. Um, but we'll go on from our um, pop culture corner now and go into our emails. 
Okay, well, it's time once again to delve into our mailbag. Uh, this week, we've got two questions. Um, so the first one uh, I'm going to fire at you guys uh, has come from Ashton Tooley from, uh, in the UK. Uh, what was the largest living primate and how does it compare to today's primates and other large mammals? Do we want to... Well, I mean, we know the answer uh, to this particular one yeah, uh, is Gigant yeah? Gigantopithecus, which uh, was a giant primate that lived in uh, what is now modern day China and Vietnam. Um, however, the only bits that we know of it come from a jawbone and some teeth. So everything else is sort of estimated, but it was pretty big. Um, they estimate somewhere between... 200 and 300 kilos and roughly standing about 3.7 meters tall tiny yeah. tiny, so tiny. If, if we want to tiny. not equate... worth the trouble not worth the trouble at all <laughs> if, if we if we want to equate 300 kilos to give you guys an idea it's uh, that's one small african buffalo uh, or it's about 8.5 german shepherds uh, or <laughs> or if you work in even smaller measurements uh, it's about 750 house sparrows that's how big, that's how big it was. Imagine an ape. Imagine a giant ape that isn't actually an ape. It's just, just, just seven hundred sparrows. sparrows what's that clumped together? What's the, what's the conversion ratio? How many sparrows to the guinea pig? You know, and oh, uh, I haven't gone that far. How many, how many German shepherds to the to to the uh, the guinea pig as well? I mean, we'll have to work out these units of measurement. Yeah, we will. Um, but yeah, I have. I have two Gigantopithecus facts now. Okay. So, <laughs> quickly researched. Yeah. The first, the first one, is that uh, they used Gigantopithecus as an excuse to keep King Louis in the Jungle Book when Disney remade it into that that live action CGI movie, which I loved, by the way. I mean, he but, was yeah. just a giant orangutan yeah. in that. But I don't think his, that was a bad his, idea. It was so, it was so shoehorned in that he even included. Like I am a Gigantopithecus in his song, I suppose, the King of the Swingers. Everyone... There's a whole verse about him being a Gigantopithecus. That, that so, would yeah, be the one where it's Christopher Walken one. doing the voice, isn't mm -hmm. it? That's Christopher Walken. That <laughs> me a Gigantopithecus. <laughs> oh God, that's a that's a brilliant impersonation. Oh, God. I'm glad you did it. What? I'm not sure if you are. But I'm glad. I'm glad you did it. Uh, my second, my second uh, fact on Gigantopithecus was that for a strict vegetarian, it was so fussy that it basically starved itself into oblivion because yeah. it didn't like bamboo, and that is what they think wiped it out. It was a, a, a big Asian species of ape, which was vegetarian, didn't want to eat bamboo in, like I say, the middle of Asia. So uh, that's why we don't have them around. It's all a conspiracy. The pandas wiped them out. The pandas wiped them out by by farming uh, massive bamboo plantations and naming it Asia. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Wow. You heard it uh, here first. It <laughs> proves proves that that us apes, we apes, are not all that bright. Well, no. I mean, you only, <laughs> you only have to look at most people to realise that we apes aren't that bright. Mm. Well. That's our, that's our first question there. So thank you very much for that one. Uh, our second question uh, comes from Summer Hales, uh, also in the UK. Uh, and it is, what is the most common fossil found in the UK? Um, I mean, I'll take a punt at that, mostly because I, I go fossil hunting a lot, although I haven't been for a very long time now. Um, the, the most common ones that I'm aware of are usually things like ammonites and bellamites. Um, both of the essentially the uh, an ammonite is the curly sort of shell that had a squid-like animal living inside of it. Um, they're really common on the Jurassic Coast in Dorset, uh, as well as belemnites are the inside bit of a group of squid uh, that lived at the same time as the dinosaurs that look a bit like bullets um, if you find them uh, along the beach. But um, there are some other fossils, things like devil's toenails they're supposed to be very very common in certain places i certainly found a few of those um which are a type of oyster they're not actually the devil's toenails what? although i do prefer the name i think it's a lot more fun i know he he just leaves his clippings everywhere yeah, yeah. 
It's terrible. Dirty. <laughs> yeah. uh, but yeah, I don't think there is a one singular most common fossil. There probably is if someone sat down and counted everything. But it depends on where you go as well. Because if you go to um, uh, the Isle of Skye or the Isle of Wight, for, for instance, there are incredibly easy to find dinosaur bones. But if you go to... Um... <laughs> You're okay there, Eric. <laughs> yeah, I just I thought of something that was probably poorly poorly timed for a podcast. Oh, okay. So Fair enough. we'll leave it at that. <laughs> if you go to places like um there's a particular stream in Manchester, it's full of plant fossils, but it's all about where you go uh, as to what you might find. But um what's the most common fossil that you two have found? I have ammonites coming out of my ears, mate. Yeah. Yeah, so many ammonites, massive ammonites. One that comes probably halfway up my lower leg, I reckon. Quite a big one. That was yeah. a nice one. Um, I got that's the biggest one, and then the the smallest ammonite I've got is about the size of a five pence piece, I think, maybe. Yeah. Um. Uh, other than that, they they're pretty much the most common ones I've found. But we also found uh vertebrae and... oh that yeah that time you went with me for the first time <laughs> to that particular beach <laughs> i, I brought that nothing, up and you find half a skeleton and i'm sitting there looking like a complete nothing moron yes i remember that one we got two vertebrae one the one that gareth's talking about is i'm sure you could uh describe it far better but if you imagine a crocodile crossed with a plesiosaur is pretty much the impression i got it's a it's a primitive type of marine reptile, yeah. Uh, like, like, and then the like other monitor. one, the other vertebrae we we think might have been ichthyosaur, I think, and that's that one's yeah. a bit bigger, like that. More like a, a reptile dolphin, yeah. I'm just so the listeners are aware, I I was actually holding up my hand to display the size to you all, despite the fact that none of you, you can see, see me. Well, <laughs> yeah. no, no, doesn't lend well. Not exactly a visual medium, no. Right? no. Yeah. Uh, there we go. Drew, what's uh, what what is the most common fossil that you've got? I I've um, well, as far as I know, I've never found one. I've never really gone out my way to look. And also, uh, Gareth, you've never invited me to one of your fossil hunts, so I'll leave <gasps> my answer on that Hi. very bitter and passionate scandal. I feel I feel called out <laughs> for that. And uh, as soon as, as soon as everything's over and get an opportunity, you feel free to come fossil hunt. Well, I just leave a better face but, in my mouth. Uh, <laughs> and then we can, then we can definitely know what your is your most common fossil that you yep. found because it will literally be whichever one that you find that exactly. Day. Yeah. So uh, exactly. Well, there we go. That's uh, there's our mailbag for this week. Um, well, thank you again for joining us this week. Uh, and remember, you can get in touch with us uh, if you want to send us any emails, questions, or any thoughts on anything that we brought up uh, in today's show. You can email us at the Nat History Cupboard at gmail.com. Uh, we're also on Twitter uh, and Facebook, where we'll always quite happily uh, read your comments and where you can find all the articles uh, that we've read out for the news and loads of different pictures of anything that we've mentioned uh, in the podcast today. So all it brings me to do now is uh, a big thank you uh, to you guys, uh, to Aaron. Thank you. Thank you. It's That's been a pleasure. Right. been wild. Good. Uh, and a big thank you to you as well, Drew. You're so welcome. Thank you. you I can see you saluting there in, in the background. Uh, and a big thank you to you guys at home for listening. Um, so next time, uh, we'll, I'll try that again. We'll see you next time here uh, in the Natural History Cupboard. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.